I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles to uh, Luke chapter 10. We started a series a couple of weeks ago on uh, our authority in Christ, and we want to continue with that. I uh, made the statement um, before, you may or may not have heard it. Uh, this is a, a series that the Lord put on my heart last, uh, I think it was October, November, somewhere around then, uh, to, uh, to minister on after we finished some other things that we were in the, in the process of teaching. And that's a, a pretty unusual thing for me. Um, God doesn't usually speak to me that far out in advance about what to teach. And one of the things that, uh, that he uh, specifically put on my heart to teach about in this series is something I want to deal with today. Now, we're using as a text scripture Luke chapter 10 and verse 19 where Jesus uh, has commissioned the 70, told them to go out, and they come back and, and uh, report uh, that even the devils are subject to, unto them in the name of Jesus. They find out that the name of Jesus has more power. It goes further for, in the, for them in their experience. It went further for them than, than it was even told them that it would go. And so Jesus responds and says in uh, Luke chapter 10 and verse 19, Behold, I give unto you power. Now the word power is in the King James translation twice in this verse, but they're two different words. Two different words in the original Greek. The first word is authority. The second word is ability. So he says, Behold, I give unto you authority. To tread on serpents and scorpions, that's a, a type or a figure of uh, the devil's power. And over all the power of the enemy, that's how we know that it means the devil's power. And over all the power or ability of the enemy. Folks, the devil does have an ability. He does have power. But don't worry, you have authority over him. Behold, I give unto you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. That authority extends to divine protection. It, that authority extends to divine provision. That authority extends to anything that the devil would use in any manner. Now, please notice the by any means. It's so easy to look at that as just kind of a filler phrase. That's not what it is. It means there's no way that the devil could ever do anything to bring harm against you if you use the authority in the name of Jesus. That sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? Now, one of the things, as I said, that the Lord put on my heart to teach about this, one of the biggest hindrances, one of the biggest um, problems that people have regarding the authority in the name of Jesus, the authority that the Bible can cl clearly says in, in verses like these, and there are many others, the, 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 that which the Bible says about the authority that we have in the name of Jesus is hindered, in my opinion, more than, than in any other way by this idea, this lack of understanding, this wrong idea, wrong understanding of the sovereignty of God. Now, folks, let me tell you right up front. God is sovereign. But a wrong understanding of what the sovereignty of God means will rob you of the very things that the Bible says that the authority that we've been given is to be given for. It'll rob you of the very results that Jesus said that authority would bring. Now, what is the sovereignty of God? I want to talk to you this morning, and, and I've got kind of an impossible task, so I don't know if I'm going to try to get it all done today. Uh, but we want to take some of the things that the Bible says and some, what some of the, those that, uh, uh, that push sovereignty of God in... Um, well, let me define our terms before we go further. Sovereignty means control. It means to be the ruler of. It means dominion. You know that uh, in Genesis chapter 1 in verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image and let them, let mankind have dominion. God's plan was for man to have dominion. The sovereignty of God idea is that God's in control of everything. So the Bible says in Genesis chapter 1 that God made man to have dominion, but 
this sovereignty, this wrong, uh, in my opinion, wrong. You decide for yourself. But this extreme idea that God's in control of everything. If God's in control of everything, then where's man's authority? That's my point. If God's in control of everything, then what authority are we supposed to have in the name of Jesus and why? Ultimately, it would come down to the only authority that we have in the name of Jesus or the only authority that we're able to use in the name of Jesus is what God's controlling anyway. So we're just like puppets and God's pulling our strings. Folks, I would submit to you whether God has authority in the earth or whether man has authority in the earth, whoever has authority has messed things up pretty good. Let me try that again. Is there any doubt that the world's in a mess? Then who's ever in control of it has messed it up. Now, you never hear this from the sovereignty of God side of things. You never hear anything other than, well, God's got a plan. And it's always this mysterious thing. And the reason this is a mysterious thing is because it doesn't make sense. You can't come up with any idea, any, any rational explanation for how God could be in control of things and have it in such a mess. Does God not know what he's doing? See, if you come to that logical reasoning, then you have to, to make this giant leap to, well, God's got a plan that we can't understand. Well, then why did he give us a brain? If we were never supposed to understand anything, why did God make man with a brain? Why didn't he just put us here on the earth and say, look, you're never going to understand anything anyway, and you're just a puppet, so just enjoy yourself. Be stupid and happy. Which is where a lot of the church seems to be. <laughs> Heavier on the stupid than the happier. But, folks, there are scriptures that we cannot deny and don't even want to. For example, this Bible says in several places, it says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That means it's his. It's not man's, it's his, Right? But there's got to be. I mean, there, there are such extremes. There are some people that think that God is controlling everything so that man doesn't have any authority. And there are others that think that, 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 well, if there is a God, he's up in heaven, but he's not doing anything. And so we're left on our own to figure things out. What is the authority of, of the sovereignty of God? What is a right understanding of the sovereignty of God? The Lord put it on my heart, and I, I have several ones. There, there are more scriptures in the Bible that, uh, that the sovereignty of God's side uses than that we could ever go through or ever want to take the time to go through. But there are certain ones that, uh, that the Lord put on my heart that we want to look at so that we can gain a proper understanding. Uh, folks, I'm not trying to convince you of what I believe to be true. I want to convince you of what the Bible says to be true. And anything that I believe that's contrary to what the Bible says to be true, forget what I believe. You're responsible for what God said, not for what I say. So, but let's look at the Bible. Let's use the, the wisdom that God has given us. Let's use the word to, 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 to define the word itself. Let's use the word to judge the word by. The Bible says in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. And let's see what the Bible has to say about some of these things. Turn back with me to uh, Proverbs chapter 16. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 4. Here's a, one of the favorite scriptures. And folks, I, I would not suggest that you do this. I have spent hours. I don't know how many hours I've spent looking online for sovereignty of God teaching. What a blessing that's been. My purpose for doing that is to find out what are they saying and what is their, what are their, their, is their scriptural backup for what they're saying so that we can really identify what the Bible says and means. Here's one of the favorite ones. Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 4. King James, scriptures, uh, King James translation says, The Lord has made all things for himself, yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. Well, okay, if that's the only scripture you ever go by, then you're going to have to conclude 
from the King James translation that God made wicked people in order to do evil so that he could judge them when the time comes. Here's a problem with that. Ezekiel chapter 33 and verse 11, God said through the prophet to his people, he said, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I would rather they turn from their wicked ways. Now stop and think about that for a minute. If God made the evil for the the wicked for the day of evil, if he made the wicked for the punishment, for the judgment that's going to come on the evil, but God says he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, how is that possible? It would mean, Proverbs 16.4, according to the sovereignty folks, means that God made people so that he could destroy them, at least certain ones. We'll call those the wicked, just like the Bible does. So he made the wicked so that he could destroy them. I assume, I'm not sure anybody's ever said it, but I assume that's to show how strong he is. I I, I can't come to any other conclusion why that would be his purpose. But if that's what the Bible means, then it would be impossible for God not to take pleasure in the death of the wicked because it would be the fulfillment of his will. Are you with me? It would be impossible for God not to take pleasure in the fulfillment of his will. And if his will was to create the wicked so that he could destroy them, then Ezekiel 33 has got to be out the window. But God said, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I'd rather they turn from their wicked ways. Well, how can we justify these things? A lot of people don't try. A lot of people just put that in the category of God's purpose is too great for us to understand. Folks, I refuse to accept that at face value. Because the Bible says that God revealed his will to us. And that's why he gave us the Bible. So this idea that we're supposed to walk around in the dark not knowing, then why did he give us his word? Let me suggest a possibility. The Septuagint says of Proverbs 16, verse 4. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew language. It was the Bible of Jesus' day. Most of the, uh, the Old Testament scriptures that are quoted in the epistles are quoted from the Septuagint, not from the Hebrew. It was the common man's Bible. The Septuagint says of Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 4, it says, All the works of the humble man are manifest with God, but the ungodly shall perish in an evil day. Let me read that to you again. All the works of the humble man are manifest with God, but the ungodly shall perish in an evil day. Now, where's God doing anything to destroy anybody there? You know, one thing I found is a common theme of the sovereignty of God idea. God's doing all the bad stuff. A common theme, and I, like I've said, I've spent countless hours. Now, it doesn't mean everybody's saying this. It doesn't mean everybody in every situation is saying this. But the vast majority, the vast majority of the sovereignty of God teaching out there means God's responsible for the bad stuff. Where does God get, get credit for the good stuff? I don't see anybody saying God is sovereign and look how good he is. I see everybody else, most everybody saying God is sovereign and that's why this bad stuff is happening because he's got some unknown purpose in this. Well, doesn't that just make you want to just run to your heavenly father and hug him? You mean you're responsible for this cancer that's coming against you? Oh, coming against me? Oh, let me give you a hug. You're just so good. Let's look at some other scriptures. 
Some people will say, yeah, but God knew about wickedness and God knew about evil. He created evil. Isaiah 45, verse 7. Here's another favorite. God created evil. What does Isaiah 45, 7 say? It says, I form the light and create darkness. Again, I'm reading from the King James. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Okay, well, at face value, it looks like God's making evil. I, I, I see some people, bless their hearts, some people are wanting the devil to have a second chance because God was the one that made him and he, God knew he was going to be turned into evil and, and, and he at least deserves a second chance. Folks, let me clear something right away. The devil's had his chance. There is no second chance for the devil. But what about this? What about where the Bible says God creates darkness and he creates evil? What about that? Well, if you just look at a Strong's Concordance, you'll find out that this Hebrew word that's translated create has two different, two main, two separate meanings. One is to create as in to make out of nothing. The second word is to, or the second meaning of the word create, the Hebrew word create, is to cut down as a tree. Now, which one applies? Folks, you need to understand, any translation is based on two things. Any translation of the Bible is based on two things. It's based on a knowledge of the language, and it's based on the understanding of the translators about the character and the nature of God. Without question, the King James translators must have thought that God, uh, thought similar to the sovereignty of God idea that we have today. Without question. Because if you take the word create, that means to either make or to cut down as a tree, which one do you use? Which meaning do you use? The word means the same, but both, the word means both things. Which one do you choose to use? You're going to make the choice based on what you think you're, what your understanding of the character and the nature of God is. You're going to make your choice based on what you think the Bible is trying to communicate. It could be communicating each way. Well, let's look at the verse of Scripture then. I form the light and create darkness. Well, that means one of two things. I form the light and made darkness, or I form the light and cut down darkness. Now, folks, if you walk into a dark room and turn on the light, what happens to the darkness? It dispels or it is cut down. So can you say from the word create that it means God made darkness? Now, the Bible says in the, in the creation account in Genesis, it says God looked into the darkness and said, light be, and light was. So the example that we have of God forming light was he spoke it into existence and darkness was cut down. Well, there's another time that that word create is used in Isaiah 45, verse 7. It says, I make peace and create evil. Now, how did Jesus or how did God make peace with us in the, in the way that we understand? The Bible says Jesus is our peace. So if we turn that into a, an understanding that we have from the New Testament, the epistles, Jesus is our peace. God made peace by bringing Jesus on the scene then. That would certainly apply. Now, whether that's exactly what Isaiah 45, 7 was referring to or not, I don't know. Nobody else does either. But it certainly applies. God made peace between himself and man by sending Jesus. What did Jesus do by, in his efforts or in his sacrifice to make peace for us? Folks, he cut down evil. He took sin upon himself. He dealt once and for all with spiritual death. So you're, gonna, you're left to choose for yourself which one of these meanings of the word create is appropriate. Did God make evil? Or did God cut down evil when he made peace? Is it possible that the Bible is saying that it's showing a contrast? God says, when I formed the light, that cut down darkness. When I made peace, that cut down evil. Is that possible? 
I would suggest that it's at the very least possible, if not absolute. For me, it's absolute. But at least it's possible. So you can't build a doctrine off of the sovereignty of God doctrine off of that scripture, then that can you? So we've taken Proverbs chapter 16, verse 4, where God said he made the evil for the wicked, the wicked for the day of evil. That can't be what it means because it contradicts other scripture. We've taken Isaiah 45, verse 7, and shown that you can't build a doctrine off that either. Yet some will say, yeah, but God knew that man would fall. God knew that Satan would, would, uh, would rebel. So God's the originator. And again, it's all this idea that God's pulling the strings on everything. Folks, the Bible says in Ezekiel chapter 28 and verse 15, it says that Lucifer was perfect in the day that he was created. God made Lucifer. He was perfect in the way that he was created, in the manner he was created, perfect in all of his ways until iniquity was found in him. Now, what does that mean? The very definition of the, the verse, what does that mean? That means that when God created Satan, there was no evil. There was no iniquity. But then at a, at a future point in time, iniquity was found in him. Well, if God didn't create it, where did it come from? Satan's the one that said, I will exalt my throne above the heavens. I will be like the most high God. I will, I will, I will. He goes through five different things that he said he will, and every one of those is rebelling against God. You know why the devil didn't get a second chance? Because he had no tempter. He originated evil. He originated rebellion. He originated spiritual pride, which was the original sin. Spiritual pride is the thing that's caused him to say, I will do all these things and be like the Most High God. That's why there's no second chance for the, for the devil. That's why there was a second chance for us. We had a tempter. What about other scriptures? Look at Amos chapter 3 and verse 6. Shall a trumpet be blown in the city and the people not be afraid? Shall there be evil in the city and the Lord has not done it? Oh, well, that's good news. Now we know why there's evil in our city. God's doing it. Folks, let me appeal to your common sense. I can do that in this crowd. You've been taught the word enough to have some. But let me appeal to your common sense, just your understanding, just simple wisdom. And that is this. If God's doing evil in a city, would we not be, would he not be unjust in telling us to resist evil in that city? I mean, if God's behind it, if God's the one that's making the evil in the city, that, that could be drinking, that could be murders, that could be prostitution, it could be any evil you can put a name on. If God's behind the evil that's taking place in a city, then how can he be just by telling us to resist that evil? At the very least, that makes him a hypocrite. But in reality, it makes him a sinning God, an unrighteous God. If God's behind evil, if God's the creator of it and he's the one that's behind it, how can he tell you not to participate or not to partake? How can he tell you to resist the evil? If he's behind it, then you're resisting his will. And that in and of itself is sin. To resist the will of God is sin in every form. So how can God be behind the evil? Well, what does it mean? Well, the margin of my Bible says, instead of uh, the Lord having done the evil, it says, shall not the Lord do something about it? Now, folks, I've got to tell you, I'm not sure exactly which way this scripture is supposed to go. Because if you look at the context of Amos chapter 3, it's talking about as a result of the sin of Israel. It's saying, because you've sinned, trouble is coming. Well, that goes back to God's original thing. If you obey the word... 
You'll walk in blessings. If you disobey the word, these curses shall come upon you. One of the curses he's talking about is being destroyed and overrun by their enemies. That's the context of Amos chapter 3. So when he says, shall the trumpet be blown in the city and the people not be afraid? The trumpet that he's talking about is the warning that you're being attacked. Well, certainly that would cause the people to be afraid. And then he says, shall there be evil in the city and the Lord has not done it? Is it possible that that means that because of their sin, this evil has come upon them? Not that God has commissioned it, not that God has done it, but that the, that the evil has come upon them because of their own sin. I see that as at least a possibility, don't you? Now, I see another possibility here. God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah because of their sin. No question about it. God did it. Is it possible that he's saying, I'll destroy your city because of your sin too? That's possible. Well, yeah, then Pastor Mike, wouldn't God be doing the same stuff today? Nope. Why not? Because Jesus said that from the time that he came to pay the price for sin and death, he said, I didn't come to condemn I came to bring life. How does that life come? It comes through the grace of God. That means from the time that Jesus came, the judgment of God ceased. Romans chapter 8 says Jesus condemned sin in the flesh. That means God found a way to deal with sin apart from mankind. Prior to that, the only way God could deal with sin is to destroy the people that were sinning. Jesus ended that. He dealt with sin apart from mankind. That's why the judgment of God doesn't fall on you today. That's why even when Jesus dealt with the evil spirits and cast them out, sometimes they'd say, have you come to to torment us before the time? That's an interesting phrase, come to torment us before the time. There is a time. But they're saying it's not time yet. Jesus, what are you doing here? Are you going to try to move up the time on us? Jesus just told them to shut up and come out. I, I really like that approach with the devil. Shut up, come out. That works. There is a time coming. When does that time come? When does the judgment of God begin to come? Folks, the tribulation period is the judgment of God. What is between when Jesus comes and the tribulation? That which is called the age of grace. God's not exacting judgment on the world now. Could he? Yeah, except that his word says he won't. Does he have the power to? Well, then I guess we're going to have to have a discussion about does God have the power to break his word? The Bible says he's exalted his word above his name. His name represents his power. So could God break his word? I don't think so. Because his word is absolute. Could God therefore exact judgment on cities today? Not according to his word. But just watch and, watch, watch and see what happens to cities after the church gets out of here. The Bible talks about some major destruction there. All right, let's look at another one. 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 14. Here's one of my favorites. 16th chapter of Samuel is when David is anointed to be king. Now at the time, Saul is king. But because of Saul's disobedience and Saul's rebellion against what God told him to do, God anoints and picks another king. Now folks, you need to understand something. From the time that God sets things in motion, as far as he's concerned, it's done. It doesn't always show up tomorrow the way that God has said that it's going to be. David spent several years, some of them not very pleasant, before he is finally installed as king. But as far as God is concerned, he is king. Now, the Bible says that when, um, when David was, uh, was anointed by Samuel, the prophet Samuel, to be king, 
It says in verse 14, 1 Samuel 16, verse 14, it says, But the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. Well, I'm so glad to find out that's where evil spirits come from. Folks, are evil spirits from God? If so, where did he get them? If they're from God, can we expect to have them cohabiting with us and and sharing space with us in heaven when we get there? What does this mean? And if the evil spirit is of the Lord, if this evil spirit is really from God, how is it then that Saul's servants, and this is the rest of the chapter, 16th chapter, how is it that the, that the servants of Saul see that, that something's changed about him? Man, he's down in the dumps. He is really depressed. And so they say, let's get somebody and bring a musician in here to lift his spirits. Folks, if this evil spirit is from the Lord, what is going to lift his spirits? And the very guy that they find to do this is David. It says in verse 23 that when David came and played, it says that the evil spirit left Saul and he was refreshed. How is that possible if it was the will of God for the evil spirit to trouble Saul? Is God anointing David to lift the evil spirit that God wanted upon Saul to begin with? If that's the case, folks, God is schizophrenic. He's working one side of the street one time and he's working the other side of the street just a few minutes later. Seriously? Is that what people think? What does this mean? The margin of my Bible says instead of evil spirit, it says melancholy spirit. In other words, when the anointing left Saul to be king, he got depressed. What did he do about that depression? They brought David in who played and ministered to the Lord in front of him and it refreshed his spirit. That tells you what to do about depression, folks. You minister unto the Lord, it'll chase depression away. It'll chase it off of you. Now, there's another thing, another point that we need to make here that's, that's going to be consistent in any of in all of these, these things, and that is the Bible says even from the beginning. You, let, me, let me refer you to this. You remember in, uh, in the, the Genesis account of Cain and Abel? The Bible says the first thing it tells us after Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden, it says that Cain, uh, they had two children, Cain and Abel, and, and they brought uh, sacrifices to God. Well, Cain was a farmer, and so he wanted to bring stuff he grew. The problem is that's not a worthy sacrifice because there's no blood in it. It has to be a blood sacrifice. Abel was a, was a, 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 a rancher, farmer type guy. I mean, a, a, what am I trying to say? Sheep herder. Sheep herder. I know the word. Thank you very much. <laughs> I was going sheep herder for effect. Get a missionary in here and they try to take over. What are you going to do? So the animals, I'm just messing with you. I get him so messed up he won't be able to preach tonight. So the animals that Abel was raising were worthy sacrifices. So Abel took that which he raised and provided as a sacrifice. Cain brought his own stuff, his own crops and stuff like that. And God didn't accept his sacrifice. And Cain got upset. Don't know why my stuff's not as good as his. Folks, I want you to understand something. Keeping the Word of God is not a habit-your-way type of operation. It's do what the Bible says. And so God speaks to him. I think this is Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, something like that. God speaks to Cain, and he says, what are you upset about? 
You're having a little pity party here. What are you upset about? Don't you know that if you do the right thing, you'll be accepted? But if you do the wrong thing, sin lies at the door. In other words, if you choose to do the wrong thing, kind of like Saul did, then sin is just waiting to take advantage of you. Just waiting to take advantage of you. Now, whose choice is it? Is it God's that you did the wrong thing? No, God's saying, what's your problem? You're the one that chose to do the wrong thing. You're the one that chose to disobey what I told you to do. And if you do, sin is waiting for you at the door, seeking to dominate you or rule over you. But my plan is for you to dominate sin. Well, how are you going to do that? You're going to do that very simply by obeying what the Bible says to do. Do it God's way and you won't have a problem. This evil spirit that the King James translation says is from the Lord wouldn't have been a problem for Saul except he was trying to do things his own way. Now, I find it interesting that this is the general operation of most of the church. Most of the church world, instead of doing what the Bible says, instead of taking the Bible at face value and acting on it, they'll do things according to the way they want to do them, get themselves in a mess, and then blame it on God. And I would remind you to keep in your memory banks God's speech to Cain. What is your problem? If you do right, you'll be accepted. If not, it's not going to go well for you. That's the general rule, folks. It still comes back to what Cain chose to do. still comes back to what Saul chose to do. Not what God did to him. Now, let's look at a couple others. Here's one that I want you to see in some detail. Exodus chapter 7. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now, I'm not going to take all of these because we're already short of time and I'm not even halfway through the things I want to say. But I want to take a couple of them to to show you. Exodus chapter 7. Let's start in verses 3 and 4. This is where God is speaking to Moses before he ever goes to Pharaoh. God's telling Moses what's going to happen up front. He said, um, he tells him, I'll send Aaron to speak for you. And uh, when you tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Verse 3, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh shall not hearken unto you. Please notice verse 4. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh shall not hearken unto you. That I may lay my hand upon Egypt and bring forth my enemies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. Look with me to verses 13 and 14. This is after Moses takes the, the rod and does some things in front of him when it, after his first meeting. Verse 13, And he, speaking of God, hardened Pharaoh's heart, that he hearkened not unto them as the Lord had said. And the Lord said unto Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Notice with me verse 22. And the magicians of Egypt did so. This is after the fish the, the Nile River turns to blood and the fish start dying and all that kind of stuff. It says, And the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Neither did he hearken unto them as the Lord had said. In other words, it's showing us that every time the magicians do something to duplicate the sign that Moses is performing by the hand of God, it says Pharaoh's heart is hardened, hardened and he doesn't listen to what they say. Verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 15. But when uh, this is after the, uh, the frogs, I believe, the plague of the frogs, they died and they, everybody gathered them up into heaps and piles and stuff. And uh, this is when um, uh, Moses cried out unto God to stop the plagues uh, for relief from the plagues. And that's when they start gathering everything up. And it says, but when Pharaoh saw that there was respite, in other words, that the plague had ended, he hardened his heart. 
he hardened his heart and hearkened not unto them as the Lord had said. Notice verse 19. Then the magicians, this is after Moses brings forth the lies. Then the magicians said unto Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. This is the first one they weren't able to duplicate. Now, folks, I want you to understand, the devil can do some bad stuff. He turned water into blood too. He caused the frogs to come up. But when the lice came on the scene, when it was a creative miracle, something where the creative power of God was necessary, the devil was out of, out of operation here. And so the magician says, this is the finger of God. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he hearkened not unto them as the Lord has said. I want you to notice the same two things are said over and over again. The hardening of the heart, and he hearkened not. I want you to understand those two things go together. Please recognize over and over again these things go together. Hardening of a heart and not hearing God. Do you see that? Let's look at a couple others. Uh, verse 32 is the next one that comes along, I believe. This is uh, when Moses, uh, the flies, the plague of the flies come up and Moses entreats God and asks him to, to stop them, put an end to them. And, um, well, I tell you what, let's back up to verse 29, verse 28. Pharaoh said, I will let you go that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you shall not go very far away and treat for me. In other words, Pharaoh says, Moses, if you will ask God to get rid of these flies, I'll let you go. Not far, but I'll let you go. And Moses said, Behold, I go out from thee, and I will entreat the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh and from his servants and from his people tomorrow. But let not Pharaoh deal deceitfully anymore in not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. In other words, Moses knows. I don't really trust you. And Moses went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. And he removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh and from his servants and from his people. There remained not one. And Pharaoh hardened his heart. At this time also, neither would he let the people go. Notice in chapter 9, verse 7. This is when the cattle die. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, there was not. He, he sent his servants to try to find out, did this happen everywhere? Or is it just happening to us and not to Israel? And Pharaoh sent, and behold, there was not one of the cattle of the Israelites dead, and the heart of, hard, of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. Verse 12. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. This is the, when the boils, the plague of the boils comes up. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he hearkened not unto them as the Lord had spoken unto Moses. Verse, uh, what's next? Verse 27. Let's start with verse 27. This is when it's talking about hail. The plague of hail. Verse 27. And Pharaoh sent and called for Moses and Aaron and said unto them, I have sinned this time. I guess that means this is my first time. I've been okay up to now. I have sinned this time. The Lord is righteous and I and my people are wicked. Entreat the Lord for it is enough that there be no more mighty thunderings and hail and I will let you go and you shall stay no longer. And Moses said unto him, As soon as I'm gone out of the city, I'll spread abroad my hands unto the Lord, and the thunder shall cease. Neither shall there be any more hail, that thou mayest know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for thee and thy servants, I know that you will not yet fear the Lord. I know you're lying, Pharaoh. You're not tricking me. I know you're lying. And the flax and the barley was spitten, for the barley was in the ear, and the flax was bold. Bold. But the wheat and the rye were not smitten, for they were not grown up. And Moses went out from the city, of the city from Pharaoh and spread abroad his hands unto the Lord. And the thunders and the hail ceased, and the rain was not poured upon the earth. 
And when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunders were ceased, he sinned yet more and hardened his heart. He and his servants. And the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. Neither would he let the children of Israel go as the Lord had spoken by Moses. Now turn with me over to Psalm 93. I'm sorry, Psalm 95. Psalm 95. Folks, I want you to understand, at the very least, you cannot build a doctrine that God hardened Pharaoh's heart heart in this situation because the Bible says just as often as it does that God hardened his heart, it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. Now, which one's right? If the Bible says Pharaoh hardened his own heart and the Bible also says God hardened his heart, which way are we supposed to believe? The sovereignty of God, folks, ignore the Pharaoh hardened his own heart part. It's all God did it. God's pulling the strings. God, it's almost like you're supposed to feel sorry for Pharaoh. Pharaoh was really a good guy, but God just wouldn't let him let the people go. Because God had some kind of unknown plan. He was going to show himself strong. He was going to show his power and, and so forth. Folks, why in the world would anybody think that God puts on such a, a ridiculous show? God gave Pharaoh a chance by saying, let my people go. And I'll show you that I'm operating on behalf of God. I'll throw down my rod and it'll turn into a snake. What kept Pharaoh from, uh, from hearkening unto the voice of God through Moses at that point in time? His own magicians t- took their rods and threw them down and turned them into snakes too. But Aaron's rod swallowed up theirs. Aaron's snake swallowed their snakes. So the only thing that's left is Aaron's snake, rod snake, whatever. I don't know. So you could look at it and say, oh, that's not, a real, that's not a real miracle. Look, my magicians did the same thing. But where are your snakes now? The only thing that's left is God's. Now, folks, you need to understand, the devil does a lot of things. The devil has power in the earth. But God's power is so much greater, it swallows it up. Don't get afraid of the devil's power. God's power is enough to swallow the devil's. That's why he gave you authority over all the devil's power. So you've got scriptures that say God hardened his heart. You've got scriptures that say Moses hardened his heart. What is it about? The same two things are are consistent. And that is hearing the word of the Lord and hardening hearts. That much we know. You can't build a doctrine either way out of those scriptures that we've seen so far. Because you've got conflicting scriptures. Which way are we supposed to believe? Psalm 95. Psalm 95 says... Beginning in verse 7, and these are scriptures that you'll see are are quoted in Hebrews chapter 4 as well. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you will hear his voice. Please notice that. Today, if. Today, if you will hear his voice. Harden not your heart. What is the key to the hardening of the hardened heart? The refusal to hear the voice of the Lord. Why was Pharaoh's heart hardened? Folks, take God out, take Pharaoh out. Let's just look at it from a a purely objective standpoint. Why was Pharaoh's heart hardened? Because he didn't listen to what God was saying. Now, here's the scripture that tells the people of God, warns them against the hardened heart. How do you keep from hardening your heart? Hear his voice. Folks, this is not rocket science. Jesus, when he he appeared to his disciples after his resurrection, upbraided them for their unbelief and their hardness of heart. Why did they have a hardened heart? 
Because they didn't listen to him when he said, I'm going to the cross, I'm going to be killed. Three days later, I'm going to rise again. He shows up and they go, oh, what are you doing here? He said, I told you. Why didn't you believe? What are you afraid of? What are you hiding behind closed doors for? Now, folks, if they're operating from a purely natural standpoint, it's easy to understand why they're behind closed doors. Same guys that killed Jesus could come get us next. But Jesus is saying, I told you. In fact, the Bible says that after the Matthew chapter 16 experience where Jesus questions them about who do men say that I am, they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Then Jesus said, but who do you say I am? They said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter speaks. And he says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Peter, but my Father which is in heaven. And upon this rock, the knowledge that Jesus is the Son of God, I will build my church. Thank God he's not building it on Peter. Now, I know some people think that he did, but they've got issues too, you know. (laughs) He didn't build it on Peter. He built it on the knowledge that he was the Son of God. He said, and upon this rock, I will build my church. It says that after that point in time, he began to plainly teach them that he was going to Jerusalem, he would be killed, and he would rise again the third day. He said it in plain Greek. Aramaic, whatever they had, I don't know. He spoke it in plain language, plain terms. He said, look, here's what's going to happen. That's when Peter started saying, not so, Lord. Jesus said, Peter, shut up. That's my translation of get thee behind me, Satan. Before Peter was speaking by inspiration of the Holy Ghost, you're the Christ, you're the Son of God. Well, then wouldn't he be worth listening to? But then Peter turns right around and says, oh, no, Lord, we don't want you to go to Jerusalem. We don't want you to die. We don't want you to be raised from the dead. No, let's not have it that way. And he says, Peter, now you're talking about the devil. Before you didn't speak from your emotions, you spoke based on what you knew from the inside. Jesus is son of God. Now you're talking about things the way you want them to be. Folks, the devil always work on your emotions. Now, emotions are great things. I rejoice in those of you with those of you who have them. Emotions are great, but they're lousy guides. You can't be led by them. And the reason you can't is because they change from day to day, sometimes minute by minute. So what does he say? Again, Psalm 95. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart, as in the provocation, and as in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me and provoked me and saw my work. Forty years long was I grieved with this generation and said, it is a people that do err in their heart, And they have not known my ways, uh, to whom I swear in my wrath that they should not enter into my rest. He's talking about Israel after they were delivered from the bondage of Egypt. Folks, what I want you to understand is the Bible says that Israel's hearts were hardened just as much as Pharaoh's hearts were hardened. Now, why? Because they wouldn't hear what God said. So can we say that God was the one behind all the the stuff that happened with Pharaoh? God told him. Moses was so clear with him. He said, let my people go. The God of the universe told me to let my people go. Pharaoh says, I don't know that God. He says, well, here. Threw down his rod. Turned into a snake. Then the magician said, oh, that's nothing. We can do that. We've got a God too. They threw down their rods. They turned into snakes. But Moses' snake ate up their snakes. Showing God was the greater power. Then Pharaoh says, well, I'm not going to go for that. You're going to do, have to do more than just these kind of things to, to prove to me. 
So what does he do? He says, okay, we'll turn the Nile River into blood. The magicians say, ah, that's no problem. We can do that too. Great. Let's have a double blood experience. <laughs> so water all through the land turns into blood. Pharaoh wouldn't listen. Why? Because his senses, his experiences, his, his natural reasoning caused him to think, well, that doesn't prove to me that he's the greatest God. But one by one, when the magicians weren't able to, to, uh, to uh, duplicate the same experience and the magicians said, hey, this really is God, Pharaoh still refused. Now, why would you think that Pharaoh would refuse? Could, is it possible, just possible, that Pharaoh's thinking, I am the strongest ruler on the face of the earth. I'm not going to be pushed around by some exiled Jew that now has come back and saying, I've got to change all my kingdom and lose all my slaves because he said so. Is it possible that there's a pride issue? You think? Folks, is that not the one thing that causes people not to hear the voice of God? Well, I don't want it that way. Why? Because I'm proud. We don't think it out that far, but that's, her, that's the reason why people don't listen. God didn't harden Pharaoh's heart. He did not harden Pharaoh's heart. God did that. I mean, Pharaoh did that on his own. Now, folks, you need to understand some things. The Bible says that God will allow people to make their choices. Romans chapter 1 and verse 28 says that God gives certain people over to a reprobate mind. In other words, there comes a point in time where God says, okay, have it your way. And it tells all the things that those of a reprobate mind experience and what they act in and, and, and all the things that they, the, the, the ways that they behave and stuff. And it says very specifically, these are worthy of death. Why? Because they chose a reprobate mind. God just finally says, okay. He says of one of the tribes of Israel at one point in time in the Old Testament, he said, Ephraim has joined himself to his idols. Leave him alone. Ephraim's choice. God says, okay. Have it your way. Folks, you choose to operate in sin, it will bring destruction on your life. And there comes a point where if you choose, continually choose to refuse the word of God and operate in that sin, there comes a point, even though the Bible says the mercy of the Lord endures forever, God will say, okay, have it your way. That's what he did with Pharaoh. Okay. Tried to show you. Ten times I tried to show you. Okay, have it your way. It's not God doing it. Remember, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He prefers for the wicked to turn from their ways. Now, let me, uh, I'm not going to be able to finish this. I'll, I'll have to come back and finish some of the rest of this uh, next week. But let me make this statement. The idea that God's in control of everything cannot be supported by the Bible cannot be supported by the Bible. There are too many other scriptures you have to refuse. Luke 10, 19 is a good example. Why in the world would God give us authority if he's controlling everything? But so many times, so-called word people, faith people, whatever you want to call us, I don't care. We've been called a lot of things. But whatever you want to call people that believe like we believe, take the position of such an anti-sovereignty place that we give up ground on what the Bible says. With that in mind, let me make a statement. God is sovereign. No question about it. God is sovereign. That means God has ultimate control. The earth is the Lord's. Man has a lease that he signed over to Satan. 
Satan's lease is running out. But the earth is the Lord's. And there are things that the Bible says about the sovereignty of God that takes no effort or no belief, no faith, no operation on the part of man whatsoever. The rapture is a good example. You've got the body of Christ that argues back and forth and has been arguing for thousands of years about is there a rapture? And if so, when's it going to be? Is it going to be before the tribulation? Is it going to be in the middle of the tribulation? Is it going to be at the end of the tribulation? Folks, I would submit to you that when Jesus comes back, and he is coming back, there's going to be a lot of the church in the middle of the air saying, wow, I never thought it would happen like this. And what they thought, what they believed, what they preached is going to have no bearing whatsoever on the fact that Jesus comes back when God says, go get them. If you happen to be one that believes that there will be a rapture at the end of the tribulation, you're right, but that's not the church. If you're one of the ones that believe that there's a rapture in the middle of the tribulation, you're right, but that's not the church. And when Jesus comes back before the tribulation, because it says his children are not appointed under wrath. When Jesus comes back for the church, their belief, their preaching, their thoughts, their ideas about the rapture in the middle of the tribulation or at the end of the tribulation is going to have no bearing whatsoever on the fact that Jesus comes back before. Because God is sovereign. He comes to get us. The millennium is a matter of God's sovereignty. You don't have to believe a thing for the millennium to take place. Not one thing. Not one thing. Folks, God sovereignly sent Jesus to the earth. It didn't take faith on the part of, any, of, of mankind. He had a covenant with Abraham. The fact that Abraham believed in that covenant relationship, God counted it to him as righteousness. But when God said this is the way it's going to be, that's the way it's going to be. Ministry gifts are due to the sovereignty of God. The Bible says God sets in the church as he wills. I have nothing to do with the fact that I'm a pastor. God set me as one. You may question his decision. <laughs> a lot of people do. I had nothing to do with that. I wasn't planning on it. In fact, I was heading in a different direction, making plans to be something else, do something else. But God sets people in the church. It has no bearing on what somebody is believing for. You can believe to be a pastor or a prophet or an apostle or anything you want to believe for. It has nothing to do with it. God chooses. That's why there's a lot of people that are out of place because they're trying to be something that God hadn't chosen them to be. Ministry gifts. And the equipment that goes with ministry gifts are a part of the sovereignty of God. For example, the Bible says, Paul's talking to the church, and he says, is everybody in the ministry gift or a ministry office of the apostle? Well, certainly not. God sets you there. Is everybody in the ministry office of the, of the prophet? Certainly not. God's the only one that can put you there. Is everybody going to operate in the ministry gift of tongues and interpretation? No, God determines that. You can believe for it all you want to. You can believe for spiritual gifts out your ears. And God's the one that decides whether or not you'll ever be used in a ministry setting in that way. Now, that doesn't mean everybody can't speak with tongues. But whether you ever speak with tongues in a public setting or a public uh, uh, experience or in a ministry experience like that is up to God, not up to you. So God is sovereign. There's no question. God is sovereign. But there are things that God does, even by his sovereignty, that he makes available to every person by faith. Salvation is the greatest example we have. God sovereignly sent Jesus to the earth to do a work. That work is to destroy sin, spiritual death, literally. God sovereignly sent Jesus to the earth and then opened the door. Jesus said, I'm the way. If Jesus had not said, I'm the way to the Father, 
if he had not told us that this was God's plan, then we would have said, well, Jesus came to the earth and conquered death, but what good does that do us? But he opened the door. He broke down the middle partition, the middle wall that separated us from God, according to Ephesians. He broke down that middle wall, which was spiritual death. Now, there's still a wall between man and God. But the wall is not spiritual death. The wall is Jesus. The only way to the Father is through him. And that means anything and everything that God has made available through his sovereign work in his son Jesus by grace is accessed by anyone and everyone through this thing called faith. That means whether or not you get saved depended first on God sovereignly sending Jesus, but now on your willingness to accept him as your Lord and Savior. People get, we'll talk next time about predestination. We'll talk about chosen and, and all this kind of stuff. Well, God, the Bible says God calls certain ones. No, it doesn't. It says God calls everyone. Well, but, 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 but the Bible says that we're predestined. Yeah, it says everybody is. That's why it's up to your choice. That's why Jesus said, whosoever will. Somebody used this example. He said, uh, imagine that you're, you're walking through this great valley under the gates of heaven. Just work with me here. Imagine you're walking through this lush green valley, and, and on the other side of the valley you see the gates of heaven. And on the, on the, 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 the doorposts of the gates of heaven, it says, whosoever will. And you go running, knowing that it's available to you. Then you get inside the gates, and it's so wonderful in heaven. You turn around, you look at the back side of the gate, and it says, the called of God. That may be a poor illustration, but that's the way that it is. The called of God are those who will. Jesus said, whoever believes in me shall have eternal life. He didn't say whoever God determines, whoever God decides. He said, whosoever will. Folks, God is sovereign. Don't ever let yourself get pushed through an argument with somebody into saying God's not sovereign. God is sovereign. But that which he's made available to his people by grace is available to anyone who chooses. In other words, you have the authority to be saved. That authority doesn't lie with God. Now, what, is it, what does it take to be saved? Well, the Bible says in Romans chapter 10, it takes two things. It takes believing in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. That presupposes that you know that Jesus came to the earth, died as a sacrifice on, a, on our, died as our sacrifice on the cross, and three days later, God raised him from the dead. That's number one. Number two, the act of faith is because you believe that in your heart, you have to confess with your mouth Jesus as your Lord. That's all it takes. It's just that simple. It's just that simple. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that your word identifies that which belongs to us. Your word tells us what we can have. Your word defines the authority that you've given unto mankind. The authority that we have in our own lives. We're not helpless. We're not subject to anything and everything the devil would bring against us. But instead... We can stand in the authority that belongs to us in the name of Jesus. And that authority begins by making ourselves a part of your family. We do that by choice, but you do the work. Father, it's so good to know that we're your children. It's so good to know that because we believed in you, believed in Jesus, you've now become our heavenly father. You're not just God in heaven. You're our heavenly father. 